to consider to whom do you listen. Technology and social media allow us to literally have constant access to voices, whether in the form of music, videos, commentary, lectures, humor, advice, counsel, news, advertising, and on it goes. We are bombarded with messages. Having at our disposal more information than at any other time in the history of the world. Let me say that again. You have access to more information than people have had at any other time ever. It used to be that information was a luxury reserved for only those in elite positions and commoners like us would scramble for the morsels that they saw fit to dispense. So it used to be said that knowledge is power, but you don't often hear that anymore. The information age has democratized knowledge so that everyone has access if they simply have an internet connection. But knowledge and wisdom are not the same. Information is only helpful if you know what to do with it. And that requires what the Bible calls wisdom, the application of knowledge. And an avalanche of information requires the discernment to distinguish between the true and the false, which far too many people, including professing Christian people, fail to exercise and so fall for the most outlandish big lies and conspiracy theories. A couple of years ago, I recommended a book that we have in our resource center called The Wisdom Pyramid. It deals with these issues, and it offers good suggestions for how to manage your information intake. I'm thankful that our Crossroads Young Adult Group recently did a series through that book. So to whom do you listen? Your answer may be, unfortunately, everybody all the time. Many make the mistake of believing that the first rule of an intelligent, intelligent person is to be open-minded. But to be fully open-minded would mean you're entirely empty-minded, filtering nothing because there is no filter. So thankfully, none of us has minds that are open to everything. But just as no one should be open to everything, we must avoid becoming closed-minded for the wrong reasons. For example, if you hold political views that cannot be altered by proof to the contrary, then your politics have become articles of religious faith, and if you're not careful, your chosen politician becomes an object of that faith. To whom do you listen? Many years ago, I was at a dinner with our beloved and longtime members, Ken and Emily Rapp, who I'm glad to say are back with us again today as Ken continues to deal with, but do well with uh, his cancer treatments. And Ken and Emily and I met uh, some friends of theirs who had joined us. The man that I had just met was interested in my work as a pastor, and we engaged in a friendly discussion about the Bible and truth and such. And at one point he said something along the lines of, like the Bible says, let your conscience be your guide. And Emily said in her inimitable way, uh, I think that was Jiminy Cricket who said that. And of course, it was Jiminy Cricket who said that in Disney's version of Pinocchio, but it's amazing how many people think that personal conscience, though as I'll mention in passing later, is something that God does give, 
that conscience is our overall guide for life. To whom do you listen? Many people just follow their own feelings or desires or ideas, investing them with authority, enthroning them and bowing to their dictates. Probably 15 years ago, I was talking to a relative of one of our church members, and he just decided that he needed to tell me his philosophy about church. People often do that with me because of my vocation. I don't say anything, but because they know I'm a pastor, they take a preemptive position for something they assume I'm thinking or I'm going to ask about. And so unsolicited, he told me, you know, I honestly believe that I can experience God when I'm out fishing on Sunday morning just as much as I can in church. And there was then this silence as he awaited my reaction. I let it linger for a few seconds, and then I just said, yeah, it could be. And I let it sit there for a few more seconds. He said, really? I said, sure, I mean, it could be theoretically that God wants you to experience Him on Sunday morning while you're fishing. But thankfully, we don't have to guess at how God wants us to experience Him on Sunday morning because He's told us what He wants. He's told us that we are to experience Him on Sunday morning in the company of other people, not alone, fishing or whatever, but gathered as His church. God says He wants us to be together as the church regularly. And so the Bible says in a passage that Billy covered in Colossians 3 last week, you teach and admonish, notice, one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Just in, in passing, thank you, Billy, for filling in last week. You used my microphone last week, I think. And you uh, adjusted it. <laughs> so you missed the sign that I have next to the microphone that's in a drawer in my desk. That of all the microphones in the building, you may freely use. But in the day you touch this microphone, you shall surely die. <laughs> all right, thank you all. Back to the uh, sermon now. <laughs> And the Bible says elsewhere about us being together, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This man and his fishing theory represent a sizable and growing segment of people who refer to themselves as things like spiritual but not religious with religion being seen as something man-made and so optional, if not downright harmful in the minds of many. To whom do you listen? For many, it's the still, small voice of the self. In my doctoral project, on the subject of discipleship in the church, I wrote this, the centrality of the local assembly has met with great resistance in our day. While many reasons could be cited, certainly the individualism that characterizes our culture is one factor. A recent survey found that 65% of Protestant churchgoers say they can walk with God without other believers. In sociologist Robert Bila's book, Habits of the Heart, 
He found the view of one woman, Sheila, to be representative of the attitudes of many Americans. She describes her faith this way, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, she said, just my own little voice. And picking up on Bila's illustration, Stuart Briscoe observed, surveys in America show that 80% of Americans believe in God, but when you look carefully into the God whom they believe, you find Sheilaism. Many Americans claim to believe in God, but in actual fact, they're really listening to a little voice inside themselves. The most important choice you make is to whom you will listen. And today from Psalm 19, we'll see that God has spoken, and we must listen. So let's ask Him to help us. Father, we thank You that we are gathered, and we're gathered because You've told us to in Your Word. And we've gathered because Your Spirit has placed a desire in us to be in Your presence and with Your people, with Your Word open before us. And so we ask You, Lord, to instruct us and remind us of the importance of Your revelation to Your people, and for us to prioritize that, and for us to get our notions, our ideas, to get our principles from You rather than from the culture and the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say, first of all, in the outline, God reveals Himself generally in His world. Now, theologians divide the ways that God reveals Himself and what He wants and requires into two categories, general and special revelation. We cover these in Master Plan for Life, the course that begins a week from Wednesday and for which you should register if you've never taken it. And general revelation is general information given to a general audience, and special revelation is specific information to a specific audience. Psalm 19 has both, showing first that God Himself generally in His world has revealed Himself by displaying, I say in the outline, His splendor. The heavens, verse 1, declare the glory of God. When you look at nature and its wonder and its majesty and its beauty, its design, the creation, is to elevate your thoughts beyond the beyond nature to supernature, from the natural to the supernatural that made it possible, and of which, really, of whom it is but a reflection. Remember that in Scripture, the glory of God is the display of His character, what God is like. And the heavens declare, the creation declares something of the character of God. We can and should be fascinated by the heavens and the earth, for that matter, but for the purpose of becoming more enamored with the one who made them and whose character they exhibit. If we fail to look beyond the created world to the Creator, then we've missed the purpose for which it's been given, and we risk becoming idolatrous. In the words of the Bible elsewhere, we become like people who exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 4 says in Psalm 19 
that there is no one who does not have access to the revelation of God because, verse 4, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The content of this revelation that everyone has access to is His beauty and, as we'll see, His power, but not His moral character. That comes in a, a limited way through, yes, the aforementioned conscience, but especially in Scripture, in special revelation. But humanity, because of sin, rejects even this general limited revelation of God, and they make God in their own image in man-made religions rather than the revealed religion of the Bible. And so, Romans 1 says, people suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been created, what has been made, so that... People are without excuse. It's a question that you have probably asked at one time, as many of us have. What about people who have never heard of Jesus? But see, the Bible says there is no one who hasn't heard of God. And all people have not only heard of God, but because of sin reject the God that they've heard about. And so general revelation is not designed to provide the gospel by which we come to a a relationship with God, but rather to affirm the existence, the beauty, the power of this God that we need a relationship with in hopes that, as Paul told Athenian philosophers in Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17, that we would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He's not far from any one of us. Let me ask you, how many people are going to take God up on that offer to seek Him? And find him. How many people on their own initiative are going to do that? I was away last week, so it's been two weeks, but we were in two weeks ago, Psalm number 14. Did you remember what we saw at that time? It says, no one seeks God. God has made enough of Himself known so that humanity should, but sin causes us to suppress and distort that knowledge so that we are without excuse morally before God. But the revelation is clear and it's available to all, says verses 3 and 4 of Psalm number 19. But verse 2 indicates that this is not only universal, but this revelation in nature, in creation, is at least two other things. It is continual and it's abundant. It's continual in that it's provided, verse 2 says, day after day and night after night. You see the sun, the moon, the stars, day in and day out, night in and night out. This should elicit then continual praise from us to the one who made it. As one preacher has observed, the more we look into what God has made, the more intricate and astounding we find it to be. That is, when we view the stars from afar, what we see is simple, though beautiful. But when we get closer, when we look more intensely, then we're all the more amazed at the abundance of all that is going on. And so it's not only continual, but it's abundant. There's, now, there's much that could be said, but for sake of time, I'll focus on what God has designed the moon to do for earth. The late D. James Kennedy said, many people do not realize that without the moon, it would be impossible to live on this planet. 
If anyone were ever to succeed in deflecting the moon from its orbit, all life would cease on earth. God has provided the moon as a maid to clean up the oceans and the shores of all our continents. Without the tides created by the moon, all our harbors and shores would become one stench pool of garbage and it would be impossible to live anywhere near them. Because of the tides, continuous waves break upon the shores of the ocean, aerating the oceans of this planet and providing oxygen for the plankton, which is the very foundation of the food chain of our world. Without plankton, there would not be oxygen, and man would not be able to live upon earth. God has made the moon the right size and placed it the right distance from the earth to perform these and numerous other functions. God reveals Himself by displaying His his splendor in His world and by displaying, I say in your outline, His power. This passage highlights the power of God by focusing on one star in particular, the sun, starting at the end of verse 4. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Now, it's important for the sun to be singled out because it was singled out in the false religions of the day in which this psalm was written. The sun god was worshipped as a supreme deity. But here, the Lord God is the creator of the heavens, including the sun that pagans worship. It's a little wonder that those who confuse creation from creator would single out the sun for worship Because the sun is, in fact, amazing, and it's an unbelievably powerful star. Dr. Jonathan Sarfati of Creation Ministries International, some of you will remember a few years ago, he was here, he spoke spoke to us, he's a brilliant scientist, and he provides the following statistics comparing the sun to the earth. The mean distance of the sun from the earth is 92,937,000 miles. Its diameter is 109 times that of the earth. Its mass is 330,000 times that of the earth. Its volume is 1,300,000 earths. Its mean density is a quarter of the earth. Its temperature is just under 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit at its surface and 25 million degrees Fahrenheit at its core. Our solar system is heliocentric, not geocentric, as some have thought in, in the past. Though the Earth is not the center of the solar system, it is the focus of God. That's why the very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens, but then separates out something else and the earth. (laughs) Because the earth, though not the center physically, it is the focus of God. The sun and the moon are designed and placed as they are for the benefit of the earth. In the 16th century, Copernicus and Galileo won the day with their accurate science showing that the earth revolves around the sun. Some of you have heard that Christians in particular resisted science at that time. There certainly were some, I'll mention here in a minute, but it's also been overblown that the church and Christians were responsible, 
primarily for the resistance. If you want some reading on that, I can provide it. And the resistance that did exist was partly because people misunderstood Joshua's famous day in which the Bible says in the book of Joshua, the sun stood still. And they misunderstood that to mean that the sun revolves around the earth rather than the other way around. Instead, the sun standing still is a figure of speech like, I've got an app on my phone, my AccuWeather app, and when I pull it up for each day, it tells me sunset and sunrise. Now, the truth is the sun doesn't rise, but it looks that way from earth, doesn't it? And we still, we still say that. Now, friends, even though much of, or at least some of what science teaches about origins is wrong and not in accordance with the Bible, and therefore we cannot accept, I just urge you, as I have in the past, we are operation science people. And let's be very careful about clinging to crackpot theories. You know that there are flat earth people? There are flat earth people. There's a flat earth society. There are flat earth people in churches. If you're a flat earther, and we, we had at least one several years ago here, I successfully chased him off. <laughs> and you're not welcome to spread nonsense here. And if you cannot be dissuaded, then I would prefer, actually, and I don't say this lightly, but you find another church, and I would help you to do that, really. But though the sun has immense power and is the center of our solar system, the sun nevertheless does God's bidding and so is described in verse 5 in a domesticated way. Verse 5, it is like the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber like a champion rejoicing to run his course. The sun is like a bridegroom who excitedly leaves his house on his wedding day. The sun rises, and like a champion runner racing on his course, the sun goes and makes his circuit. And these verses do more than speak of nature as a witness to God's glory. They also undermine pagan beliefs, because the same imagery was used of the sun god in ancient, ancient Near Eastern literature. The sun does precisely what God has designed it to do on the timetable that God has set for it. And so verse 6 says, it rises at one end of the heavens, makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So God reveals himself generally in his world and also specially in his word. Now, in verse 1 of Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The Hebrew word that is translated, the, the name of God used there is El. And so very often, as in Elohim, some of you have heard that as a name for, for God, sometimes often shortened to El, God. And that's why many of the names that you find in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament Hebrew, end with El. Because people would often name their children with some attribute of God. So you have Danny L, and Ezekiel, and Joe L. Those all have God at the end of, of their name. And in, and in verse 1, it's the heavens declare the glory of L, of God. But in verse 7, it says that the law of the, and then notice again, the Lord is perfect. 
And I told you a few weeks ago that all caps, Lord, as you have there in verse 7, is a translation of the personal name of God given by Him to His people, Yahweh. It means I, I am. And He was revealed as such to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So you have, beginning in verse 7 now, God specially revealing Himself, making Himself known, not to just the world in general, but in particular to His people and in a particular way through His Word. He's giving His law especially to His people. In pagan religions at the time that this was written, the sun god was the god of justice, but the psalmist is here emphasizing that the true and living God of Israel is in fact the one who's the lawgiver establishing justice in the earth. And God's Word reflects, I say, His attributes. Verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the, the eyes. One commentator says the word law is the word, the Hebrew word Torah. Many of you know that word. The root meaning of Torah is instruction. It has to do with everything that God has revealed or says. Our best equivalent would be for law in verse 7, Scripture or the Word of God. Statutes literally is testimony. It means an aspect of truth attested by God Himself, often with the idea of being a reminder. Precepts, together with the word commands, which comes next, means orders, indicating the precision and authority with which God addresses us. And verses 7 and 8 give four things about God's Word that reflect God's character. Perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, and each of those produces something in the hearer or reader. Verse 7, it's perfect, that is, it's complete, and so it refreshes. It's trustworthy, so that you have one place to go, so that the simple can find truth, not just the elite who have access, especially at that time, to much more information. It's right. And so it produces a blessedness, it produces a joy in the person who believes that, yes, this is good and right, and I'm thankful to God for providing it to me. It's radiant, that is, it's clear, and so it provides clarity to the reader or hearer. God's Word reflects His attributes. So, friends, we therefore should treat the Word of God with the reverence that we treat the God who gave the Word. And therefore, we are very careful about how we interpret it, very careful about the claims we make regarding its truth. God's Word reflects His attributes and so deserves, I say in the outline, our admiration. Old Testament scholar George Zimmick outlines the reasons for our admiration and appreciation of God's Word. It's based upon the nature of the Word in verse 9 and 10. 
The fear of the Lord, verse 9, is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And so the nature of the Word of God, when it's perceived as fear in verse, in verse 9, produces a purity that's perpetual. We fear, we reverence is the idea, the Word of God, and therefore are inclined to do what it says, and thus this purity is produced on a perpetual basis. When it's perceived as legislation at the end of verse 9, the Lord's decrees, then His standards are, in verse 10, exceedingly precious like gold. They're highly palatable. They go down easily for the person who loves them and loves the one from whom they have come. And so to whom do you listen? Do you listen to the Word of God? Do you see the Word of God that way? Is it more precious than gold? Is it sweeter than, than honey? And this appreciation is based not just on the nature of the Word, but also the nurture that the Word provides. Verse 11, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there's great reward. And so the Word of God nurtures us in our spiritual growth in that it's a vehicle to admonish us. We are warned, but it's also a vehicle of perpetual adherence. We keep them. And in doing so, there is great reward. That is, God tells us how to live. And when we live the way God says to live, there's great reward in that. And the more you see that, the more you see that God made humanity for human flourishing and He gave His Word to instruct us for human flourishing, and you do that, and then humans flourish, then you desire to do that more and more as you see and experience that great reward. So God's Word reflects His attributes. It deserves our admiration and our appreciation. And it requires, then, our application. Being in, as we sometimes say, the Word, being in the Word, rather than all the other stuff I said at the beginning of the sermon, listening to the Word and listening to God and His voice, it has the advantage of exposing the sin of the child of God and pushing us toward prayer. Verse 12, but who can discern their errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Now just think about those two verses, verses 12 and 13. This passage has extolled God's revelation to us, this latter portion of Psalm 19, His revelation to us in His Word, but then reading His standards that reflect His holy standard in the Word, then the question must arise for the sensitive, spiritually sensitive reader, how can I do this? Who can discern their errors? How am I going to be able to do this? And that question should come up for you as well. And it should come up for every Jew who read that before the time of Jesus. How am I going to be able to be right with God given the standards that He's given 
in His Word. So being in the Word exposes our sin. And by the way, we'll answer that when we conclude in just a few minutes. Being in the Word exposes our sin, but it also confirms that we are indeed God's child and propels us to praise. Verse 14, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You are my Lord, again, all caps. You are my personal God. And my heart's desire is that my words and my attitudes be pleasing in your, in your sight. Now I ask the question, how is it that we can be right with God? How can we have a relationship with God if His Word gives us the standard of His character? Well, Psalms 15 through 24 form a unit within book one of the five books that comprise the 150 Psalms. I told you about that several weeks ago. But Psalms 15 through 24 form a unit. And we're going to do another, at least two more, within this unit. Next week we'll do Psalm 22, and the following week the famous Psalm 23. Now why do I say Psalms 15 and 24 form a unit? Well, because they both have similar language, asking in Psalm 15, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can be and dwell in His presence? And here in Psalm 19, how can I know my, all of my sins? How am I ever going to be blameless in the sight of this God whose word gives His, his standard? And Psalm 14, we saw two weeks ago, says no one, due to our sin nature, can actually do this. And likewise, the verses 12 and 13 of this psalm, though the aspiration of all of God's children are beyond our reach, but thanks be to God. There is one who has ascended and who is dwelling in the presence of God. And that is the one to whom the introduction to this book of Psalms in Psalm number 2 pointed. And we now know this side of the cross as the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 24 tells us, it asks the question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. But again, who can, who can do that? And Psalm 24 goes on to say, lift up your heads. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He? This King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. So this points us to what we need. Someone outside of ourselves who can be that blameless and upright one, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, who can dwell in the presence of God. And the only one who has attained that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. 
where you remember John was given a glimpse of what's happening in heaven and what's going to take place in the future, and there were these scrolls, but no one could open the scroll because no one was worthy. You all remember that? Here's what Revelation 5 says. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who wrote Psalm 19. The root of David has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll. To whom do you listen? Friends, you listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father said of Him when He walked the earth and He carried out His perfect life of obedience, He said, this is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. And then notice, listen to Him. You've got to stop rolling your own God. You've got to stop making up your own stuff. You've got to stop following your feelings and desires. You've got to look outside yourself and look to the book that God has given and the person who is central to that book, the Lord Jesus Christ. He guides your life. He died for your sin, as we heard in the testimony earlier. And you require a relationship with Him. We're going to close by offering you the opportunity to come to Him, to bow your heart and give your life to Him and begin listening to Him. Here's your take-home truth. God has spoken, so we must listen. And so you realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Christ died for your sin. You repent, Lord, I'm not going to make it up anymore. I'm going to follow your word and what you say. I repent, I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ in your life. We're going to bow and pray. When we do, you ask God in your own words from your heart to apply the work that Jesus Christ did to you personally. The Bible promises he who calls on the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for this blessed opportunity to be before you as your people, but in this portion of this service, we thank you for being able to sing to you and give back to you and pray to you, but we thank you for the light of your word. We thank you that we can open it and be instructed thereby. Lord, help us to be people of the book, people of discernment, people who sift through the true from the false. And we do not allow the voices of the culture and of the world to misguide us because we are fixated upon you and upon what you have said. That's the character of the people who belong to the Lord Jesus. 
And so we thank you for saving us, for rescuing us from falsehood, from the, the lies of the, the culture and the world. And Lord, I pray that you would work in this sacred moment in the hearts of some who may have come in here thinking that they're good enough. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who can stand blameless before you except one who has accomplished it on our behalf. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we seek to exalt him in our lives and in our ministry. Lord, we all must come to him as Savior and bow before him as Lord. We ask you to affect that in the lives of some this morning, and we will give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.